Hello, this is Aaron Saft on the MR Running Pains podcast. With 30 years of running experience and 20 years of coaching, I thought it time to share with you things I've learned and people I've met so that you can try things for yourself and see if they help your running. Thanks for joining me. Wrote this song while crew and Aaron on a 100-mile foot race through the trails in the rain and mud. How about that? Episode 38. Today, I speak with Dr. Brent Myers, who is a uh, local chiropractor here. He's, um, as we talk about, a sports chiropractor. And um, the gist of this is just to get to know uh, what is the role of a chiropractor? What do they do? How can they help us? Uh, Why would you see one? Um, And then we get into a lot of different things in this episode and talk about um, you know, uh, devices that uh, can help us as runners, um, resources. I mean, it's, it's chock full of things that, um, I'll add to the show notes cause, um, Dr. Myers had a lot to share. It was fantastic. Uh, great conversation. I was really, um, really thankful that he came on this podcast and, and shared his knowledge. Um, and, uh, so thank him for coming on. Um, and, uh, I'll, uh, I'll present to you here. Dr. Brent Myers. I hope you enjoy the conversation. All right. With me today is Dr. Brent Myers, um, a sports chiropractic um, doctor from uh, from our area in Western North Carolina. Um, Dr. Brent, you want to give us a, a little more formal introduction of yourself? Hello, good morning. Yep, Dr. Brent Myers here from Asheville, North Carolina, uh, originally via Cleveland, Akron, Ohio. Um, brief background is actually uh, when I graduated high school, my, my career wanted to be in fire fighting, and I have a uh, associate's degree, almost a bachelor's in emergency management in fire science and technology. I was a part-time firefighter for a while. Injured my back while actually lifting weights and surgery was not a good idea as a young firefighter if you're trying to get on a full-time department. So 
I never heard of this crazy thing called chiropractic. Never even, never even knew they really worked on the spine. No clue. Somebody had uh, left me a business card at the gym, and I had a numb leg, a foot that wouldn't work. That's called drop foot, and burning like from my hip all the way down to my foot. That was incredible. And I had tried a conventional route. I had some previous symptoms like that, not knowing what was really going on. And obviously this was 10 times worse. So I went to a chiropractor, long story short, I had amazing results. I was doing my EMS and paramedic training at the time and uh, healthcare really made sense to me and athletics and exercise, nutrition, fitness was a passion of mine. So didn't see myself as a firefighter maybe when I was 45 or 50. So made the jump into chiropractic and Fast forward to 2006, I graduated from Logan College in St. Louis and took a job here in Asheville and been here ever since. Right on. Um, so um, your chiropractic school didn't, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about how that worked and everything, but um, with your, uh, you know, your, your undergrad degree, um, you were, you were able to just continue in uh, to chiropractics without any uh, intermarry courses. No. So, so after I made that jump, which was a, a big jump, it was going from a associates slash bachelor's degree, kind of a two plus two. So associate and then another associate equals a bachelor's. When I made that decision to go chiropractic, uh, I went into sports medicine instead. So sports medicine and athletic training was, was what I took at the university of Akron. And because I had taken already so many previous courses, I actually moved on to Logan College and got my bachelor's degree in human biology. So it's kind of like the classic combination of all these different classes equals a bachelor's degree. So a lot of chiropractic students will have some type of bachelor's degree in health sciences, whether that's biology. I think some of the best are uh, sports medicine, exercise kinesiology, exercise phys, Something along those lines really makes chiropractic school uh, easier, makes it more sense. A lot of the classes you take in undergrad, you end up taking very similar versions of that in chiropractic, just obviously much more in-depth and advanced. So that's the route I took, and that's pretty common. So usually a bachelor's, then you get your chiropractic degree after that. So it's, it's more kind of physiology rather than the, um, you know, the, the sciences uh, kind of a little different than the pre-med route, you would say? Um, no, it's actually, you could actually do exactly the same route. Okay. And during chiropractic school, many of the courses at the beginning of chiropractic school are, are very similar to the medical degree route. Uh, big difference being that in chiropractic, we start the adjusting or the, the hands-on work about a half a year into your first year of school. So, so we do trimesters, most schools. So usually your third trimester, you're, you're learning the techniques of adjusting. Whereas with traditional medical school, you usually do all your sciences first and then move on to, you know, your, your medical side. So chiropractic kind of combines it all and then you go on through. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll kind of get a little deeper into, you know, what you did, uh, through the education. So everybody has a kind of their idea, but let's take a step back and kind of define, I'm sure a lot of people know what chiropractors are, but let's define chiropractic. Yep. So chiropractic is defined as you essentially the use of your hands to manipulate the spine. And when it was originally found or developed, I would call it refound because it's not as if somebody didn't adjust bones 5,000 years ago. It was, it was coined the term chiropractic in the late 1800s, by 1890 or so, by a gentleman named D.D. Palmer. There's a school named after him. And he, I'll tell a brief story on how it happened. Brief story was there was a gentleman in the place where he worked. D.D. was a magnetic healer at the time. So, so many times back then, there was only your MD, your dentist, and, and that was about it. And then he had some crazy things like bloodletting, magnetic healing. That was about it. And D.D. was a magnetic healer. A gentleman by the name of Harley, Harvey Lillard was a janitor. And the story goes that years in the past, he was injured. Something had fallen on his head. And over time, he had lost his hearing. 
and that was brought to light by D.D. And for some reason, as he says, it compelled him to feel the gentleman's neck, and it, something didn't feel right there. I can't imagine what this was like in 1800, but he decided to move a bone, and he heard a pop and a crack. Didn't think much of it, but if we go several weeks down the road, Harvey's hearing started returning, and he could hear, as he described it, the wagon wheels on the on the um, bricks outside. So that got him wondering, what was this relationship with the spine? Chiropractic was developed, which is adjusting the spine to free up the nerves that come down through the vertebrae that come out of the spinal cord, and then those nerves end up going somewhere in the body. So chiropractic in its infancy was adjusting the spine to relieve nerve tension that may be causing an ailment or a problem somewhere else in the body. Now it's changed vastly over the years. That's where it all started. Right. So now it's expanded to pretty much the, the body, anything out of alignment, correct? I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, majority of chiropractors are going to treat the entire body. There's still a few, there's still a few, few schools out there that, that only believe in treating the spine. However, majority, I would say 90%, 85% of practitioners are going to work the entire body. And then some will specialize even further like myself down the road. Okay. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about that specializing. Um, when you talk about specializing, uh, what, what type of specialties are there? So chiropractic like medical field can have a, a lot of different specialties. You can actually get a diplomate in radiology even. So a chiropractor who maybe doesn't want to spend their days adjusting in a clinic and just wants to be a radiologist can actually be a radiologist and work in a radiology lab and specialize in radiology. Others specialize in orthopedics. They're not going to be doing uh, orthopedic surgeries, but they're going to be doing orthopedic test evaluations and whatnot. Uh, nutrition is going to be another huge discipline. Secondly, I would say uh, pregnancy and children is another big discipline. And then last but not least, what I do, which is sports medicine, that's, that's probably the largest field that's the uh, second part of chiropractic or where somebody would specialize, which is in sports medicine. Okay. I've also seen uh, a number, you know, obviously with, with what I did with the store, um, that do pedorthics, um, mm -hmm. that fall under the orthopedic realm or. So with orthotics, it falls underneath the orthopedic realm and it also falls underneath, I would say like the sports realm. Okay. Now, now there's a lot of companies out there that have, have gizmos that you can analyze somebody's foot and then a chiropractor can make an orthotic. I've always in, in my practice preferred to refer to an orthotist just because that's their specialty. That's what they do. So I, I try and stay in my lane, which is manual therapy and sports medicine. So in chiropractic, you can do a lot of orthotic analysis and you can use x-rays to look at those things. So yeah, there's a lot of different avenues you can take. Sure. Um, and then, you know, getting to those avenues, uh, you started to touch on, you know, the, the education that, uh, that you received in, in chiropractic school, but, um, so, you know, you, you begin, uh, would you term it, uh, you know, kind of, uh, hands-on manipulation, you know, uh, you began that about, you know, halfway into your first year, where does it go from there? And then how do you get into specialty? What does that look like? Yep. Yep. So how it breaks down in school is, is obviously you're learning with your classmates. You typically have the same classmates all the way through chiropractic school, which is 10 trimesters. So you have usually your four years of undergrad and then about three and a half of chiropractic. And along there, you're working on your classmates. And right around try six and seven of those 10, you start working on your, your non-students or your outside public. They'll pay usually a reduced fee to go to a chiropractic college where a chiropractic intern will be learning the adjusting side of things. So usually for about a year and a half or so, you're, you're practicing with instructors, with your classmates, and then you branch out after a lot of different testing and making sure you know what you're doing to the outside world. And then there's a certain requirement of adjustments, visits, people you see before you can graduate. And after that happens, then obviously you graduate and you can go out into the, the real world, so to speak, with your own practice. 
So that, that last piece is almost like an apprenticeship. Yeah, exactly. So, so a little different than the medical field, I kind of explain it that we do our interning at the halfway point of chiropractic school. So we're still taking classes. Typically classes are all morning and then our adjusting or clinic hours are in the afternoon, you know, two to six or something like that. And many schools will have like outside clinics throughout an area. Like for instance, in St. Louis, where I went, at the time, there was four or five clinics throughout the St. Louis area. You would go to those clinics just like it was an office, and you would work on, you know, regular average people. So, and you pick kind of your specialty at the beginning of your education? Not necessarily. So, so typically in chiropractic school, it's changed a little bit since I've graduated. However, majority of people are going to just be adjusting because that's that's the nitty gritty. That's where chiropractors earn their money. That's where, you know, you need to know what you're doing in my opinion. So most of us specialize just in adjusting the spine and occasional extremity here and there. Now I graduated a while ago, 2006, right around that time, sports medicine side of chiropractic really started picking up. It still existed before that, but, but not as many colleges were recognizing it or having additional programs you could take while in school to to really focus on that area. Nowadays, yes, there's certain schools, my school, for instance, Logan in St. Louis, where you can actually, quote unquote, specialize in sports angle of chiropractic while still in school. So that's a little bit changed since since I graduated. Right. And I imagine there's kind of, um, you know, a continuing ed um, if you have to, you know, fulfill. Yep. That's the key, really. Uh, when you come out, you know, the, the, the trick is when you come out, you haven't really adjusted enough people. So it takes, in my opinion, time to see enough people and enough adjustments to, to really get the art of chiropractic, as I like to call it, under your belt and become a very good proficient adjuster and just see enough people. That's where the continued education is so important. So majority of, of the, the education I have learned has been post-grad. And that's, that's where it all begins. That's where truly, in my opinion, you're going to be separating yourself from others in terms of what you specialize in, for lack of a better description, how good you are with figuring out what's wrong with the patient and getting them well as quickly as possible. It's all in the continue education realm or post-grad work. Do they have um, board that you have to take and then do you have to continue to take those every so often? Yes. So how boards work is there's four portions of boards in chiropractic school. We take the first three while we're in school, the first being mainly sciences, and then it kind of expands from there into some of the hands-on and orthopedic side of the classes. And then part four, which is, which is, the most difficult part is typically when you're graduating and it is hands-on, you're given scenarios. Typically there's, they're paid actors, so to speak, with actual conditions and problems. And you go to 10 different rooms and you read these problems out loud. And then you try and figure out what is wrong with that patient and what you need to do. There's also a, a very big radiology portion to that section as well. So, Chiropractors read a lot of x-rays and there's a lot of red flags on x-rays you need to know about. So they like to make sure that you see what's on there that could be a red flag and who you would need to refer out to properly. So these boards last for four sections. And then once you're out, there's not necessarily any boards besides your state board that you're in, which everybody has to take a state board typically. And then after that is continued education and each state's a little different where like, for instance, in North Carolina, uh, it's 20 hours, I believe. I'm ne never short on hours. I'm always over on hours. So 20 hours, I believe, is what we're at in this state. Each state's a little different. It's between 20 and 30 hours that you need each year to maintain your license. Cool. Um, so, um, you know, obviously when I've come in for visits, you've done other modalities and, and techniques. Um, so um, where did that kind of uh, side of things come, you know, come from? Yep. So again, chiropractic school now, a lot of these classes and um, specialties you can, you can work on while you're in school. Back when I was in school, we didn't have those options as, not, as much. So I had to take many of those outside of school. And for instance, one of them I took is, was called a 
selective functional movement assessment or in the uh, athletic training or uh, strength and conditioning world, it's the functional movement screen. And that's an important training or uh, technique to learn for a sports chiropractor. It's looking at movement analysis, looking at how well somebody is moving and what red flags may show up in terms of their movement analysis that could be causing their problem. So that's a very important aspect of my practice is that functional movement screen or SFMA along with, again, taking other courses and gait posture. You kind of sky's the limit on that. Sure. Sure. Uh, as well as, you know, you do uh, a lot of active isolated stretching, um, use Graston, um, you know, so, I mean, those are obviously things you picked up afterwards as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, in, in my opinion, as I've practiced further in my career, the first and most important job a chiropractor needs to do is, is figure out the diagnosis quickly and as thoroughly as possible. If you can't really figure out what's going wrong with the patient, the diagnosis, then you're kind of just throwing a bunch of stuff up at a wall and hoping you're something sticking. So diagnosis is first and foremost for me. So with me, I took the route of movement analysis, gait, just watching the patient, the athlete move. But after you've develop this diagnosis and, and figured out what's wrong, so to speak, with the patient, then you need to treat it. And that's where I specialize more in soft tissue work. That was my specialty was soft tissue work. And you can take soft tissue courses like I did through school, and then you can take them along the way. So, so for example, I, I take active release technique. That's what I use much, much of the time in my practice. I took active release technique while in school, and then I maintained that certification over the years. Graston technique is another technique working on muscles. We can get all into how those muscles are treated in a little bit here. But Graston is using metal instruments or tools. By now, everybody's seen some type of metal tool or instrument. That's a different way to still treat soft tissue. And then there's cupping, as people have seen, and dry needling now, which isn't really anything new. It's just kind of a new wave idea. So you can focus this stuff on school while you're in school, which is some of what I did, and then continue to take it throughout the, throughout your career. Nice. Um, and kind of what I appreciated about your practice specifically was that you were trying to resolve the problem, you know, uh, not just give me a readjustment and send me out the door. Um, do you feel like some of your, uh, your colleagues, you know, they kind of just kind of, you know, kind of give you a temporary fix and then keep you moving or is chiropractic moving away from that and trying to resolve the, the problems? Uh, in my opinion, I'm not afraid to share my opinion. A lot of times, <laughs> many times chiropractic is, is stuck in just wanting to adjust the spine when this problem may be coming from somewhere else further down the line. Maybe it's an ankle or a big toe issue, which is where gait and everything starts to begin with. And if we only, as I describe it, pound away the high spots in the lumbar spine, are we truly going to ever fix the patient's problem if their ankle mobility is decreasing their hip motion, which is then causing a lower back problem? So we are getting away from just only adjusting in chiropractic. However, I still feel there's there's a disconnect with within the chiropractic community. It mostly depends on what school you go to a lot of times. And that you've got to treat the soft tissue. I will argue that as long as I'm practicing, you've got to treat the soft tissue and you've got to treat those underlying restrictions in the fascia, soft tissue, joints before just relying on the spine. And we are getting better with that, but there's still different chiropractors depending on which you go to. And that's okay. That's, it's, it's, a, um, it's an art form. And just like with MDs, there's different disciplines we all focus on. However, I, I will always argue you've got to treat soft tissue. You just can't pound down the high spots, as I like to say. <laughs> and my point in asking that is that, you know, we, we've got listeners from, from all over. Um, how would somebody find somebody that's really going to get deep rooted and try to find a solution rather than just kind of, uh, you know, 
do an adjustment and, and keep you moving. Exactly. And if you've talked to friends and family and they've gone to chiropractors many times, their chiropractor is the only chiropractor you should ever go to. Everybody else is terrible, but it may not be the right fit for you. And, th- and that's okay. So, so again, chiropractors can focus on many different things. When I first came out of school at the type of office I was at, it was a very high volume, very busy clinic. I wasn't able to do many of the soft tissue techniques that I was trained to do. It was honestly pound down the high spots, see a hundred patients a day. I got to be a very good adjuster, but I never got to really work on sports injuries. It wasn't until I went out on my own. So you do have to look around, ask around. A couple of the ways you can do that is active release technique has a great provider website. That's the one I first go to always. Do you know that? Yep. Active, active release technique.com. And if you go on there, it just says provider search, type in your zip code and you're going to get a list of all the providers that have taken ART in the past. And then typically I'll go to the website after that and I'll look over the website. You can get a pretty good idea on a website if this is a more of a sports chiropractic office, more of a movement office, more of just a traditional chiropractic office that has taken some ART courses. You can kind of go that route. So step with ART, active release technique, look that up, go to provider search, type in your zip code, go to those websites. Then I would ask around. But again, like I said, many times we have our opinions on who's the best chiropractor around because we went to that person. Typically, they've, they've helped them, which is great. But again, they may not be the right fit. So go that route first. I will put that um, website in, and uh, you know all those in the, the show notes. So if, if anybody uh, is looking, they'll be in there as a resource. Um. And, um, all right. So, you know, we, we kind of talked about what, you know, what your, uh, what you kind of define as a, a sports chiropractic, um, and with ART, if you want to get a little deeper into, you know, kind of what happens during, uh, an appointment when you, you know, when you actually get into the muscle and, you know, and the, the alignment, uh, why don't you go ahead and, you know, kind of give us an idea. Yep. So if a new patient comes into my office and, whether it's an athlete or not, they're getting some type of, of movement analysis. And I'll start with the, the basic SFMA movement screen, which involves the patient standing and going through different ranges of motion. These are literally pass-fail. So you can either do it or you can't. We'll go through those. That'll give me where areas to look or codes to the combination that I can get this problem to unlock. So first I'll do this assessment based on movement, based on obviously a history, and then doing some orthopedic tests as well. But a movement can tell you a whole lot. And then you can go into the orthopedic test after that. Once I've developed a plan of what I think is wrong, let's take a runner, for example. And uh, we briefly talked about like a runner with a lower leg injury. That's a really good example to give. So let's say they have a right calf injury. So we'll still do a full screen. So I'll have them look down, try and touch your chin to their chest, look up at the ceiling, look right and left. I'll have them try and touch their toes. I'll have them bend backwards, all of which they should be able to do within a certain range of motion and a certain level. For example, you should be able to touch your toes where your chin should be able to touch your chest. If you can't, technically speaking, there's something that's not working right. So we'll go ahead and look through all that. And then we'll break it down a little further. So with that runner with a calf or a lower leg injury, we certainly have to look at a a three main examples or three main areas. I'm sorry. First, we got to look at the big toe. We got to look at the ankle and we got to look at the hip because one of those three areas is probably dysfunctional. And if they're not moving well, then more than likely that's where the lower leg issue came from. So for example, if they have poor ankle mobility, then what's going to happen is they're going to overload that calf. You can get some ankle mobility issues within that area, overloading the calf. Then you, maybe you get plantar fasciitis or a calf strain, or maybe it just changes your gait enough that you're overusing your knee. And now you're starting to get IT band pain or patella pain as a result of your knee doing more than it should. Or we can go further up the line and look at hip. 
So maybe the hip isn't extending the way it needs to. So when the runner is running and they're in their stride, maybe their hip can't extend. So then their lower back's doing the extension for them. When that happens, they're going to get this dull, achy, low back pain on the right side a lot of times, being that the right side is the problem we're looking at. So if we can look at that hip extension and get that moving better, then the low back pain goes away. So so the way I always describe, and I've, I've used to teach some classes in soft tissue is you need to look locally, but you need to think globally. So, so I'll look at that runner's calf and I'll look at that ankle, but that calf may be a result of that hip problem or that lower back problem further up the line. So that's the initial analysis we're looking at. Sometimes we may even look at a video of a runner or we'll take them out back and have them run and I'll film them. Quick story, I had a runner years ago who was having hip issues. I was not getting getting where I wanted to with them. It was I usually use like a four to six, four to eight visit mark that I should be getting progress. And if I'm not, then I need to double check what's going on. This particular runner was getting lower back pain. I wasn't getting progress the way I needed to. So finally we went out there and filmed them. And when I looked back at the film, I believe it was right lower back. The left shoulder on this this individual was not moving at all. There was no rotation in the shoulder. It was almost as if it was just hanging there. So came back, looked at the video, asked the patient, you know, have you ever injured your shoulder? Is anything going on? Look at this. It's not moving at all. Long story short, they had dislocated their shoulder years ago skiing. And once we started working that shoulder and freeing up some restrictions there, actually the lower back pain went away. So on that individual, it was all the way up in the shoulder causing the right lower back pain into the leg, into the hip. So having lost that rotation on the left side, right side was overworking. So that's how global a problem can get. Sure, absolutely. It was a long drawn out explanation, but now we can kind of break it down if you want from there. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that, you know, a number of different things that uh, we could, uh, you know, possibly be suffering from. So it sounds like in, in general, if there's you know, some type of ailment, whether it be, you know, plantar fasciitis, that's something probably you see commonly. Yeah. 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 I would say, um, I actually joke that, uh, that my practice really developed and started as a result of you and others sending me patients only with plantar fasciitis for a while, I thought all I was was a podiatrist because that's that's all I saw, which is great because at the beginning of my young practice, that brought me a lot of patients. It brought me what I wanted to see, which were athletes. So plantar fasciitis is a really common running injury. I see it all the time. I probably have a handful of patients every month with it. And many times it's it's mistreated or diagnosed in the in the allopathic world, the medical world. So again, we're looking locally. So we're only thinking the healer, the foot's the problem. Majority of the time when I have a plantar fasciitis issue, especially if it's more of an acute issue, that calf is a big issue. We've got to treat something deep in the calf. A lot of times tibialis posterior, which is a very deep muscle within the calf, is all gummed up and restricted. So we got to treat that area. And then as it gets longer, down the line, the patients had the problem for a long period of time, start getting hamstring issues, hip issues. You got to look at that whole area. So with plantar fasciitis, if we just focus on the foot, the plantar fascia, the heel, majority of the time we're going to miss or the prognosis is going to be less successful if we don't look at that calf. Right. And this is where um, ART typically comes in, yep. active yep. release therapy. Um, yeah. Can you talk about the, you know, the actual therapy itself? Uh, yep. Yep. So, so within our muscles, we have something called fascia or fascia, depending on who you talk to. And the way I like to describe it is it's, it's like saran wrap that wraps around and through and between our muscles. Okay. And many times that, that stuff can get glued together. Think of it like an old paintbrush that you forgot to wash and all the bristles are stuck together that fascia will get stuck or intertwined within our muscle fibers. And when that happens, those muscles can't slide and move the way they need to. That can cause a problem right in that muscle, but it also can cause an issue above or below that muscle in the joint or further up the line. 
It can also entrap a nerve. So that's where we get like tarsal tunnel syndrome or carpal tunnel syndrome or some type of issue within a nerve that fascia can get wrapped around a nerve. You get a nerve symptom and it's not coming from your spine. It's coming from an extremity area. So take this fascia and what they did in the labs, let me take a step back with fascia. One interesting thing was prior to the early 1980s, fascia wasn't even acknowledged as a really a part of the body. Back in those days when somebody had compartment syndrome, they would actually cut that stuff out, hoping to free up the compartment in the leg. The problem was it never really fixed it and they had all sorts of other issues. We started studying fascia in the 80s and now we start to realize this, this has its own like neurological connection. It has its own blood supply. It's actually a, it's, it's a functioning part of our body. And luckily, we're able to treat those areas which relieve or alleviate problems. So when that fascia gets glued up, if we can unglue it, that muscle can slide and move the way it needs to. One really cool uh, slide you can look up online is if you type in fascia and a cadaver, you can actually take a strip of fascia from the big toe and it'll be one long continuous strip to the back of the head, which is fasc fascinating. So if you've seen like in... Um, in museums, the moving body exhibits and whatnot, where they've where they've they've dissected these these individuals and then shown somebody moving in a sport. It's, it's fascinating to me, obviously. That fascia is connected all together, so you can take a strip from the toe all the way to the back of the head. So if somebody's got got a problem hung up in the hip, it could affect all the way down into the foot. It could affect all the way back up into the head. So that fascia is all together. What active release technique does? or Graston, or Factor, or any other soft tissue mod modality is try to, try to free up this fascia. Now, I'm a big advocate of AART, active release technique, because it's been around for 30, 35 years now, and it, it works. Bottom line, it works. What we're trying to do is we're trying to take a muscle that is not moving well. I am gonna put my hand on that muscle, typically my thumb, and I'm going to make that muscle move through a range of motion that it's supposed to move through. Now, many times if the fascia is restricted, while I'm moving that, it's not going to feel very good. However, what patients describe every single time is it's a hurt so good. It's a good hurt. It feels like this is what needs to happen. But what we're trying to do is reline up the fascia or get it to slide or move better. You may have heard terms like break up the fascia, break up the tissue. People love to use that with foam rolling and, and whatnot. That's not possible. It takes hundreds and hundreds of pounds of force to break up fascia. What you're trying to do is realign it back up so it's more parallel as opposed to think of it like a basket. We don't want a basket. We want parallel. We're trying to realign it back up so then it slides the way it needs to again. That's what Graston, that's what Factor... That's what ART all tries to accomplish is release that fascia that's glued together, get it to slide. And that's where sports chiropractic has really made a lot of headway in that somebody like myself or another sports chiropractor, we focus on these muscular restrictions versus just only worrying about manipulating a joint. Because a lot of times it may not be the joint whatsoever. It, it's the tissue that's restricting the joint. So I could adjust till the cows come home and all I'm doing is making a joint mobile, but maybe too mobile because the muscle is not able to hold that joint properly because it's not sliding well. That's where ART comes into play. Sure. Um, with that said, uh, and speaking to joints, um, you know, there's uh, the, the term flossing. Uh, where we may floss the ankle or the the hip and try to get that moving, but um, would you say that that's you know okay to do, or would you rather see somebody work more with the foam roller, like you said, and and try to work on the mobility of the fascia, or should they be used in combination? I actually like uh, I actually like flossing a little more than foam rolling these okay. days. So, so 10 years ago, foam rolling was, was all the rage. Everybody should be doing it. That's what's going to fix everybody. It's not that it doesn't work. Uh, we we, we kind of took it out of context in what it was really doing. With flossing, you are taking like 
a very thick rubber band is the way I like to use it. Um, and wrapping it around a joint, it's a little hard in the hip. You can do different different motions there, but let's take an ankle because that's the easiest one to picture. And we wrap that ankle up really, really tight, almost like a tape job in in uh, basketball or something. We're wrapping that up really, really tight, and we're making that ankle move through a motion. That right there does a very good job of improving joint mobility and releasing that stuck fascia. Now, in the ankle, that's a really important area because there's not a lot of muscle around the ankle. It's, it's all soft tissue and it's all connective tissue. So that's where flossing works really well. Now with foam rolling, what it really does is it's changing tone within the muscle and it's changing signals to the brain and back and forth. It's telling the brain, okay, this thing is, something's happening in this area. So let's, let's start sending signals here and then all of a sudden it feels better. It's similar to like um, a percussion device, like a Theragun or a Hypervolt. It does a good job of getting out lactic acid, but it's also sending signals from the brain to the muscle to help do something. So if you want to try and turn it on, it can help with that. Or if you try and want to subdue it, it can help that way. So it's not that foam rolling doesn't work. It's the concept was kind of taken out of context. It's changing perception in the brain to the muscle which is going to have a favorable impact. Flossing does a different thing in terms of its improving joint mobility. And then since we're talking about that, let's talk briefly about stretching. So stretching is very effective. And, and one of the things I've noticed over the recent years is we're getting back to stretching for long periods of time, which I think is very, very effective. So let's take a quad, for example. So erectus femoris or the hip flexor muscles, those are chronically tight on everybody, especially desk workers. And then if you're trying to run, that's just going to completely impact your gait. So a great way to release or get the hip flexor or the quad to stretch better is to actually stretch it. An example is a couch stretch. You can look it up. In the past, we would maybe stretch for 30 seconds. But what we're finding is we need to hold these stretches a lot longer, maybe up to two or three minutes. And that's what I've changed in my practice a lot is holding these stretches for long periods of time and then working on our breathing. And it's going to calm down the tone within that muscle and get it to elongate in a healthy way. And we get much better, quicker results. So, so kind of gone are the days of like hold a stretch for 30 seconds. We need to go a lot longer. So Start at 30, but your goal is to get to two minutes, maybe even three minutes, and much better results. Got it. Cool. That makes sense. Absolutely. Um, it, just touching back on flossing, too, um, you know, is that something that people can receive some kind of training on uh, before doing it on themselves, or is it okay to, you know, kind of wrap, like you said, the calf uh, and, and, you know, go through the mobility by just watching, let's say, like a YouTube video? So in the, the glory of the internet, uh, we can learn a lot of things and become, you know, PhDs of YouTube. So there's nothing wrong with that. We just need to make sure, as I always describe to my patient, that whoever's teaching it on the YouTube channel, make sure it's not some schmuck that has no idea what they're doing. And you look in their garage and there's, you know, not anything that's related to what they're trying to discuss on YouTube. But there's, but at the same time, there's plenty of videos out there. So yes, go on YouTube, go research it. Certainly due to my training, I have a little better idea of where I'm going to put these air, these, these, at, um, the floss and how I'm going to move it. But the patient or the individual learning how to do it on their own, they're probably going to be okay. Now areas I wouldn't floss as a patient without a, a really good understanding of what's going on is around the knee. If you don't floss there right, you're going to get a lot of patella issues. You're not going to go. You're not going to go wrong with an ankle. You're not going to go wrong with a calf. Elbow, same thing. You can pretty pretty much floss an elbow pretty easily. Shoulder gets a little trickier. So like a shoulder or a knee, I would rather somebody who really really knows what they're doing work on those areas. There's there's some important structures in there that can cause problems. Sure. Quad, same thing. You should be okay. So go on there, check it out, experiment with it, know where the red flags are. Great. Thank you. Um, that said, um, you know, I'd like to 
ask all my healthcare professionals about their um, their favorite tools for runner. Um, so if you could, what would be, let's say five, you know, it doesn't have to be five, it could be less, could be more, five tools that you uh, would be great for every runner to have in, in, you know, at home. Yep. So not in any particular order, uh, a Theragun or a Hypervolt, I definitely think that's a great investment. The Hypervolts are, are affordable, $300 or so, I believe. Theragun, there's different versions of them. The professional version does work the best. It's very loud, but it's very effective. Uh, that's much more much more expensive. I think it's maybe around 600 or so. But Hypervolt Theragun are percussion devices that you can work on your muscles to not only get soreness out, but also to kind of wake them up. So I love that product. Next, I would say actually is electrolytes or magnesium. And the reason being is most of, most of athletes are deficient in magnesium. We are more acidic than we need to be. And we don't recover as well as we should. Electrolytes and magnesium do a tremendous job with improving recovery. So one of the electrolytes I am a big fan of that I saw at my office is called Cineplex. Cineplex is made by a company called KTS Solutions, and it's hands down the best electrolyte on the market. And it will improve recovery tremendously. Next is magnesium. Magnesium, the key to magnesium is buying a chelated version. So, so not at like they're not typically going to have it at a local drugs drugstore or a grocery store. These are chelated to amino acids and they're much more absorbable. Magnesium can be very difficult, difficult to absorb. So you want a form of magnesium that your body is going to absorb. The bad stuff's magnesium oxide. Lactate's just okay as well. Oxide and lactate, the reason being is you're not going to absorb much. If you want to have really great bowel movements, then use magnesium oxide. But if you want to have really great recovery, really great sleep, really great energy, you want to use like magnesium glycinate, magnesium tarate, magnesium malate is great for muscles. So magnesium would be the other one of the other um, additions or tricks I would use. And how much... Uh, um I'm sure, I don't know how much magnesium is measured, but how much would you say? Start with, I'm an advocate of taking a lot of magnesium, especially if it's chelated. You should have very minimal uh, digestive issues with it. So I'm going to call for almost a gram a day for most men and six to 800 for women. And that's, that's a little bit on the low side. I'll take upwards of 1,500 to 2,000 a day. Again, it's got to be chelated or, yeah, you would get some GI issues. So shoot for between 600 and 1,500 milligrams a day, depending on how much you're sweating, how much you're getting um, in your diet, which is difficult, and how much uh, you're training and stress in general. Magnesium is uh, a mineral for stress. So the more stressed you are, the more you're depleted in magnesium. It's my top five supplements. Like I said, everybody's deficient in it. Uh, Another product I think is really important would be, um, or another something a runner should do is they got to focus on some strength work twice a week. So say a runner is running four to five days a week, four to six days a week. There's got to be a strength involvement in there. It can't just be running. Uh, there's a direct correlation to strength and longevity even more so than, than balance. So the stronger an individual is, the healthier they are as they age and the less likely for significant injuries as they get older. Sometimes in the running community, they love running so much, but they forget about the aspect of some weight training. Nothing wrong with, nothing wrong with a little weight training. If somebody's getting ready for a marathon, no, I'm not going to have them in the gym three, four days a week, but they should be in there one to two days a week doing some important basic foundational things. One of the most foundational movements for a runner, in my opinion, would be actually what's called a split squat. And the reason I say a split squat is because it's going to help ankle mobility. It's going to help hip flexibility. It's going to help quadricep tightness. 
It's a unilateral movement, so you're going to be able to balance out strength between each leg. It's similar to a runner's stride, and there's a boatload of different variations you can do with that. So a split squat is a crucial exercise to a runner. They can even use it as a warm-up, similar to a lunge, but you're not walking. You're usually stationary in place. And also the couch stretch, which we talked about earlier, majority of people are sitting these days and hip flexors are getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Couch stretch is, is mandatory for, for most people. Um, and then last but not least, I would say some type of stretching band. So I use a product called Jump Stretch. You can also find them on Amazon. They're big, thick rubber bands that in the weightlifting community they use for, for explosive movements for like a squat or a deadlift or a bench press. But it's also an amazing device to use to stretch with. Is developed by a gentleman in Youngstown, Ohio named Dick Hartzell. He was a strength coach from Youngstown State. And an amazing apparatus to use to stretch with, especially hamstrings, hips, upper body. So type in jump stretch band, that'll show up. And then, like I said, there's a different, a bunch of different manufacturers now with those. Cool. Great. Thank you. Uh, I wrote all those down and I'll, I'll put them in the show notes too. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and then kind of uh, lastly, uh, best book you'd recommend for runners that they might not already know? I can never break down things to a best book um, or a best something. My kids always ask me, like, what's your favorite blah, blah, blah? And I can never have a one favorite, so I'm going to give you a couple. Uh, since we're talking about sitting a lot, Desk Bound by Kelly Sturette. He also wrote Supple Leopard. Desk Bound is a really good book right now because, again, we're sitting so much. It gives you all the tools and tricks and, and ways to prevent your body from just becoming rigid from all the sitting we're doing. And with a runner, you know, you sit at a job all day long and then you get up and you want to run at 4 p.m. after work you're running in this position like this and then you wonder why you're getting like hip flexor issues or your knees getting all gummed up you're getting it band issues well your hips are completely restricted your ankles are probably too that book's really good at giving you some tips and, and tricks to improve mobility that you can do at home so desk bound okay. one i just listened to i do a lot of audible is actually i just found it fascinating it's been out for a while now uh is the sports gene. The sports gene is a look at whether or not there are genetic predispositions to be great athletes. And he, he gets into a lot of different examples. He talks a lot about the Jamaican sprinters and, and why perhaps they may be such great spinners and why the Kenyans may be such amazing long distance runners. I won't spoil it, but it's it's interesting because especially the the sprinter and the runner chapters, which he talks a lot about, so a lot of the book is is built in terms of running, is definitely didn't think of some of the reasons why they may be such great sprinters and long distance runners. Briefly, for example, like in Kenya and in Jamaica. Well, in Jamaica, there was a group of people that was very, um, they, the British were trying to, let's just say, expunge their population, so to speak. So they were hidden away in these very remote areas where they developed a lot of tools and tricks to, to explode and and jump out to the enemy he gives a much better example than i just did it's a fascinating story on on just just perhaps where maybe they develop some of their explosivity from explosiveness would be a more appropriate word for there and the kenyans they talk a lot about um how far away they were at school so they had a run for 10 miles just to get to school if they even wanted to go to school and perhaps that may have helped their endurance versus another population in say south africa so that was really an interesting book and then lastly one i'm reading right now is breath 
and it's this the science behind breathing which we don't really think about because we just do it all day long however there's plenty of research behind if we breathe properly how quickly we can recover from things and he gives all sorts of different techniques along with uh different philosophies, different uh, yoga modalities, and, and different health techniques that have been used over years, centuries, decades to help with breathing. And it's really interesting how quickly somebody can relax a nervous system, turn on a nervous system, uh, shut down their brain, turn on their brain, go to sleep, all that based on breathing. So super interesting, called breath. Awesome. Great. Thank you. And again, I wrote all those down, so I'll put those in the show notes. Um, anything else that we didn't touch on that you think uh, uh, we didn't do anything for us? <laughs> uh, I guess I, just a couple tips and tricks to to help a runner so they don't necessarily need to come into my practice, let's just say, is majority of what I see in terms of running injuries can be prevented from becoming long-term issues by working on hip mobility and flexibility, ankle mobility, call it flexibility as well. So if a runner can really focus on keeping those hip flexors flexible, keeping their quads more flexible, definitely their ankles as well, many of the conditions or problems they develop won't be as severe or may not even show up at all. Certainly a lot of runners have tight hamstrings, but I'll say it many times is the hamstring holding on for dear life because the hip isn't doing its job. So if we get the hip to do its job then the hamstring calms down. So fix your hips, fix your ankles. Many times your running is going to get much more effective. Sweet. Yep. Perfect. Awesome, man. Well, I'll probably be seeing you soon. <laughs> I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time today too. Absolutely, Dr. Brent. We appreciate you. Yeah. All right. Uh, and how can people find you or reach out? Uh, a couple different ways. I would say social media wise, I'm much more on Instagram than Facebook. So Instagram is B Myers Cairo, B M Y E R S C H I R O. On Facebook, Dr. Brent Myers or Myers Chiropractic and Functional Health. Those are the two best ways to reach me social media wise. And then, obviously, from those links, you can get to my website, which is bmyerschiro.com. Those are the best ways to reach me. Perfect. Cairo.com. All right, I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And, hey, thanks for your time, buddy. You're welcome. That was great chat. Appreciate it. Once again, thank you to uh, Dr. Myers for coming on, and uh, I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Again, um, the show notes are going to have a lot of the things that Dr. Myers and I talked about, um, a lot of the different uh, um, you know, um, lists that we went over, um, websites, everything. Um, I'll provide that all in the show notes, so check those for, for all of that. Um, and uh, just in closing, uh, last week, episode 37, I talked about um, things that I've learned through uh, the coronavirus. Um, and uh, I sat and reflected for a while. Uh, I thought about it on multiple runs. I even made the list and realized just how personal a lot of this stuff was. And I wasn't quite ready to, to share it. Um, I just personally, there's a... There's a lot that's gone on this year. Um, still working through a lot of it, to be honest. Um, I think it will be good to to share it. I just wasn't quite ready yet. So um, I knew in the last episode I said that that was going to be coming, but like I said, um, just don't feel it was the time to do it. I'm not just quite ready for it. Um, but um, it's coming. <laughs> I will let it out. Um, and uh, man, it's it's been. Um, it's been a great fall thus far. Um, you know, if you follow me on, on social media, um, it's just been, uh, so engaged with a lot of, uh, a lot of the athletes that I'm coaching and, and friends, uh, that I run with. Um, you know, so if you look on Strava, 
<laughs> I've been quite busy um, trying to post some stuff on social media as well, and um, you know, people have tagged me, so it's it's been really great. Um, it's been a great great fall for adventures. Um, I did sign up for uh, the uh, Duncan Ridge Trail 50K, which is November 21st. Starts at Vogel State Park. Looking forward to that. Um, you know, it's been a while since since I've uh, I've raced a 50K. Um, I did do a uh, a 25K this past weekend. Um, that was, um, October 31st slash November 1st. Um, you can see that on my, my Facebook and, um, Instagram pages. Um, (laughs) it was, uh, it was a great, um, to, to race and to be out there. And, um, you know, it was, it was definitely social distant, um, and, uh, you know, very responsible on the RD's part. So, uh, well done to, uh, um, to Matt Hammersmith and his crew. Um, and, uh, also signed up for, uh, the pilot mountain goat, which is a seven mile race up pilot mountain. Uh, it's December 12th, I believe. And, uh, you know, things are, things are coming along. Um, training has gone well. Um, excited to, to see what, what this new fitness brings. I'm in a new phase of training. I'm, I'm incorporating Lydia's hill drills, which are kind of plyometric drills on an uphill. Um, so Again, you know, all this stuff's on Strava. Um, um, Aaron Saft, MR Running Pains on Strava. Uh, you know, follow me on there. You can ask questions about training, um, you know, the stuff that I'm doing. Um, I did make a video on YouTube of the Lydiard Hill Drills, and um, it's actually a whole phase of training, four to five weeks worth of uh, two, uh, two sessions a week, depending on how much you're training. But um, really enjoying that. It brings uh, a lot of strength. Um, and it's supposed to be resistance to injury. So that's why I'm doing it. Um, it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. It's humbling. Um, but it's, uh, it's kind of a, a nice new addition to the training. Um, I've done a base work for the past 10 to 11 weeks and, I uh, feel like I have a really good aerobic base. Uh, heart rate's staying pretty low at, at, uh, some good paces. So, um, yeah, training's going well. I'm happy with the way it is and what it's going on. Um, my son starts up cross country, uh, as I record this here on November 4th, he's got tryouts today. So that's pretty cool. I know they're going to be, uh, racing in a different way. It's more of a time trial format where, uh, each team races on the course by themselves, uh, you know, not with any other team. And then, uh, when they're done, another team goes. So, uh, very social distant, but uh, at least they're getting to compete. So excited for that. Um, and, uh, yeah, everything's going well. Um, Hopefully I'll have the kids on again here soon. Um, they can talk about um, their running and, and cross country and all that good stuff. And um, yeah, we'll see where things go. Um, man, uh, I'm gonna have some more fun guests on. People are just doing some, you know, awesome, amazing things. So uh, gonna talk to them about, you know, what made them do it and how they did it, all that good stuff. That way we get insight and kind of learn from their experiences, so we can we can, you know, hopefully have our own. Um, stay safe out there. I know, you know, things are kind of crazy. Um, I've had a few friends test positive and, you know, just uh, worry about everybody. Um, so please do your best to stay safe, do what you can to safeguard yourself and your family, um, against getting sick, uh, or contracting Corona, uh, it's flu season two. So, um, you know, I, I, I've talked to about athletic greens in the past. I have no affiliation with them, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a good thing to help you stay healthy. Um, so, uh, look into athletic greens. I think it's just athleticgreens.com. I'll even put it in the show notes, but like I said, I have no affiliation. I use the product, believe in it. Uh, you know, it, it helps keep the immune system up. So just trying to share what I know. Well, I think that's enough for in closing. Um, as always, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please, you know, share the podcast, um, subscribe if you would, leave a review. That really helps me, um, you know, get the word around. Um, uh, you know, I'm thinking about going on Patreon as there there are expenses with this, but uh, I just don't feel it's the right timing. So uh, maybe at a future date, um, love your support, appreciate your time. Uh, again, follow me on my socials, on Facebook, MR Running Pains Coaching. Um, I also have a personal page, Aaron Saft, uh, Instagram, it's MR running pains, Facebook, uh, I'm sorry. Um, YouTube is Aaron Saft, uh, Strava, Aaron Saft, MR running pains, uh, subscribe to the website. I haven't launched the November newsletter yet. I'm hoping to get that out this week as well. 
this weekend. Um, I'll be uh, I'll be running the shut in with my buddy Dave Workman, um, just trying to help him uh, hit a time goal. Uh, so that should be pretty fun. So I'll keep you posted on everything, my friends. Thank you once again, and uh, I'll talk to you next week.